Welcome to the second season of the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we will now be exploring the exciting and fast-growing world of esports. We will be interviewing a variety of professional esports players, coaches, and stakeholders in order to better understand the psychological demands of competing at the elite level and the important role the mind plays in esports performance. Today we welcome Adam Skinner to the podcast. Adam is a UFA licensed coach who currently works at Nottingham Forest FC as the lead academy goalkeeping coach. Adam's work in the footballing industry spans over 11 years in which he's been the goalkeeper coach at Fulham, Leicester City and Barnsley FC. In addition to his coaching qualifications, he has a degree in sports coaching and psychology, so he has a great appreciation for the mental side of football. So let's welcome Adam to the podcast. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. How's your Friday? It's been busy. Yeah. Not, I mean, in terms of meetings, yeah, but like in terms of being outside, not too much with uh with the weather. Nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. We um we went out to train this morning and it was uh snowed under completely, yeah. and then uh, come eleven o'clock it was it was clear, so we were quite lucky. I know the sun has come out to play a little bit uh, in the afternoon for sure. Um. Yeah, did you manage to get much done then or or was morning training sort of cancelled? No, we, we still trained, so we braved the weather. Um, it was a tough morning, let's put it that way. Um, just had to keep the boys warm throughout the morning. That's just the biggest challenge. So, no, we still managed to get some good work done for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, how is it sort of for you at the moment? Um, obviously, coming towards the end of the season now. Um, how busy are you like on a week-to-week sort of basis? Yeah, still still really, really busy. Um we, we're lucky in terms of our under-18s, under-21s, that we're still involved in a lot of cup competitions. Um, so what tends to happen second half of the season, the fixtures can somewhat stagnate. But currently, we're like absolutely still flying with games. Um, we're averaging about three to four games a week at the moment between the two age groups. So it's a lot of work. A lot of, a lot of travel. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of travelling involved as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's even worse, yeah. But uh, I don't think about that bit. <laughs> For sure, but uh, but no, yeah. I sort of how we like to start podcasts. We we start every podcast like this for the listeners to sort of get to know you a bit better. Obviously, we've already gave you a bit of a brief overview, but if you were to take us through your journey today, uh, from growing up, how you got into football to sort of where you are now, who is Adam Skinner? Um, well, um, that seems a long time ago now. The the starting point. Um. I think at the age of 15, 16, quickly came to the realisation that I was never, ever going to play professionally. Um, always had an interest in coaching for some reason in teaching. Um, so made the transition towards coaching quite quickly. So at 16, was coaching local adults teams, which was probably the biggest learning curve I probably could have had. Um, decided that I enjoyed coaching, but I don't think I knew enough about it at the time. So decided to go and take on a university degree which was sports coaching and psychology. Um, wanted to really understand the, the why behind why I coached the way that I did. Um, I think like any young coach when I started out was massively influenced by what I'd been exposed to as a young player and thought that, that was the only way to do it at that time. Um, I think through, through university, was able to then really try to get a good understanding about what coaching could look like instead. Um, and started to really challenge my own philosophy around things. Came out of university, um, knew that football can be quite volatile as an industry, so decided to go and get a, a teaching degree, 
um, and started as a, as a part-time PE teacher um, alongside my coaching at Fulham Football Club. Um, I worked at a really, really tough secondary school in inner London, um, which again, really supported my coaching and does support my coaching to date. Um, the element of communication with kids from different backgrounds um, was huge and, and plays a big part in, in how I coach today. At the same time, I was coaching at Fulham Academy. Always knew that I wanted to go full-time into coaching. Um, did that at Leicester City Football Club um, before then going on to Barnsley and then obviously now finding myself at Nottingham Forest where I'm, I'm lead academy goalkeeping coach for the academy. Um, I, I would probably say I, I have more questions now about coaching than what I did when I first started. Um, for somebody who really likes to work in black and white, I find myself in the grey a hell of a lot in coaching, which is, um, yeah, intriguing. Yeah. What are some some of those questions that you ask yourself? Like the specific question, like specific question. I'm curious to know. Like, <laughs> um, I think, and you know, this this is a real life story. For example, like you know, the other night I'm sitting there at two o'clock in the morning having a look at um, how how a tennis player returns serve at 130 miles per hour and thinking, what can we take from that in terms of goalkeeping? Mm. How can I try and support the boys learning so they can get there a little bit quicker? Um, I think just around how we teach, what we teach, and the why we teach it. And does that come out in a game situation? Ultimately, mean, my job is to obviously try and get players into the professional game, get as many as I can into our first team environment. If it's not there, then obviously into a footballing environment at a professional level. Um, and I think you're always looking across the world to try and find what other people might be doing that might be slightly different to you that could add value to your own coaching. The second bit is obviously understanding the individual. Um underpins everything I think in coaching yes obviously we talk about teaching and learning but fundamentally I've got to connect with the human being in front of me if they're to take on board what I'm trying to teach them so it's how can we get a better connection with them to try and pass on that knowledge yeah now I love how certain coaches take things from other sports and try and apply it into the sport that they work in we had a throwing coach uh, who's worked with like Liverpool um, and he took a lot of tenants from basketball in terms of like space creation um, and put that into football and how you're going to receive from a throw-in. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of innovating. Um, to, to do that, it requires such skill and creative, creativity um, to be able to do that. So, yeah, props to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, did you have a question, John? Um, I forgot it. Oh, God. <laughs> Go ahead, all. Yeah. Like you mentioned, obviously, um, growing up, uh, you said that like sort of coaching is influenced by like what you've seen in the past from past experiences. And that's sort of like the only way. Uh, but obviously, you now know that there's there's so much more to the game. Um, were there any inspirations for sort of you growing up uh, in terms of like being a coach? And also, was you always a goalkeeping coach or um, did, did you manage outfield as well? Um. So I'll start with your last question. I've, I've always been um, within the capacity of a goalkeeper. So obviously played when I was younger and then went straight into goalkeeping coaching. Um, it's my passion. It's my thirst. I think as I've got more experience, I've started to try and support more with the outfield side of the game. Obviously, the goalkeeper now, I think, in the modern game is being asked to do a lot more with the ball at their feet and obviously a lot more integration with the outfield players. So it's only right that obviously I try and support where I can to try and give a goalkeeping perspective to the outfield players and also the outfield coaches as well. Um, in, in terms of inspiration, I would say I had two um, who were key um, to one, understand that I had a passion for this thing. And then secondly, really trying to give me 
um, some really good grounding about what I thought, as I said to you, coaching looked like at that time. So one of them was my first goalkeeping coach that I had, a guy called Les Cleveley, who's currently now working out in um, in India. I thought in terms of um, his mannerisms, in terms of how he coached, I thought in terms of getting a buy-in and relationships with, with all of us, I thought it was outstanding. And then on top of that, his tactical technical knowledge was was brilliant. Used to bounce into his sessions every single week. The second one was a guy called um, Vic Bettinelli, who currently still coaches at Fulham. Um, I owe him a hell of a lot to me getting to this point in my journey so far. Um, gave me an opportunity as a young lad to come in and shadow him. And I was happy to do anything, pick up the balls, pick up the cones, pick up the bibs, um, hit hit footballs at the goalkeepers. That's what it took to understand and learn the craft of goalkeeping coaching. Yeah. Um, me still absolutely one of the best goalkeeping coaches in the game. Yeah. You've touched on, obviously, how much the goalkeeper position has sort of developed over the years. Do you think you could have uh, coped with that back when you were playing? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I was I was, I was, a kick it as long as you can down the pitch. No nonsense. Slightly uh, like <laughs> smaller stature, five foot nine. I, I'm not sure if I would have uh, held up to the demands of the game, I can assure you. Yeah, you like my cousin uh, Ben? He's a uh, short keeper as well. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good in the we're good in the five aside goals. The eleven aside. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, true. true. <laughs> I have to get you on my five aside team. Um, but yeah, no, like I wanted to touch on you know the role of a goalkeeper um, and sort of how that's changed. How much has that sort of influenced your coaching, and how much have you had to adapt? Would you say it's been really significant in terms of when you were coaching, say, ten years ago, to where you are now? Is it sort of like night and day or is there a lot of similarities? No, it's um, it's night and day. Um, I started, when I first started playing, I had an idea of what goalkeeping coaching would look like. Um, high levels of success, high levels of repetition, feel good factor in a real isolated practice. Um, I used to get to game situations and wonder why I couldn't make decisions, why I couldn't cope with pressurised situations why all these isolated techniques that are absolutely perfected couldn't come out in a game situation. Um, and obviously, since then, I've really started to become a little bit critical around coaching and actually for, to get better at doing them type of things, you need to put them into some form of stressful environments, which might be have to make decisions. It's going to be a little bit chaotic at times and they're going to get things wrong. So all the things that I grew up believing in as a goalkeeper absolutely flips in its head when I became a coach. Um when I first started coaching, um, there was a big movement towards teaching games for understanding, um, which is since, I think, probably then translated into constraints-based coaching. Um, at the time, I think people moved with teaching games for understanding as let the game be the teacher um, and fundamentally didn't really believe in that either, um, but certainly felt that moving towards more game-based coaching would be more appropriate for, for young for young goalkeepers. Um my experiences, I've obviously been working with under nine-year-olds, under eight-year-olds, all the way through to supporting with first-team goalkeepers. Um, and that's been really important as well to sort of see that journey um, and seeing what's expected at first-team level as well. Um, so I've gone from being really heavy technical-based to really big game-based. And actually currently where I find myself is somewhere in the middle yeah. um, and being able to slide along that continuum. And the biggest thing that I'd say, the reason for the slide is the person standing in front of you that you're coaching, um, understanding their needs, um, where they are along their development journey and going, actually, I've got two people standing in front of me today. What he might need might be totally different to what he might need. And I suppose trying to be skillful in in providing a an environment which which stretches and challenges both of them. Yeah, no, yeah for sure. Um, in terms of like, 
at academy level, um, is there like a number one or number two? And I wanted to sort of talk about that dynamic and the, and the psychology of that dynamic in terms of supporting the number one keeper. Um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of hear your perspective on that and maybe what makes a good backup goalkeeper or number two um, and what sort of roles would you want them to sort of conduct uh, Yeah, around the training pitch? It's really interesting because um, a guy called Eric Steele, who uh, worked for Manchester United for years, um, is currently working for the FA, um, he once said, um, if you look after your number two, your backup goalkeeper, your number one will probably be okay. Um, and didn't really understand what he meant at the time. Um, and actually what he's like, was we, you need to make sure your number two is happy, he's driven, there's an ambition for him to try and get in the team. Because if you do that, naturally, number one is in that in that situation. He's going to have to keep working harder. Yeah. So, in terms of does it happen at academy level? Yes, when you get into 18s, under 21s, I would say there is. But certainly below that, no, there's not. Um, the boys are given fair fair game time, equal exposure, and I think that's really important. Um, again, it's about managing the personality in front of you. I think in terms of understanding what their needs are, where they are in terms of their development journey, and trying to support them in different ways. Um, but it, it can be difficult. It can be difficult, especially I think the goalkeeper position is slightly different from an outfield position. There's one. Um, unless that goalkeeper loses form, unless he gets injured, it's sometimes difficult for the other goalkeeper to break in. And they know that as well. They they understand that. And sometimes coming into train for nothing at the end of the week, but they, you know, they're desperate to play a game, can sometimes be difficult. So it's, it's how you maintain motivation and, and maintain a, a deliberate effort every single day. I mean, it's like a prime example of Forrest at the moment in terms of like Dean Henderson. You know, we're both United fans and, uh, you know, seeing him transition, like obviously an unbelievable goalkeeper um, and him having to make the switch just for his career. Um, and he seems like he's thriving in sort of that environment now in terms of that first team goalkeeper. But does it get to sort of a point where you sort of need to jump ship if you feel like you're not going to get your chance? I think so, yeah. I think so. I think... Um... I think with, with with goalkeeping, I think what, what you're tending to see is now that there's younger goalkeepers starting to break into a first team earlier. And I think goalkeepers are understanding that as well. So they're desperate to go and play games and obviously they're happy to do that wherever they can. So sometimes if it's not going to be at your club, then maybe to push across and try and find that exposure somewhere else is really, really important. Yeah. I think going back to your question, I think obviously this has been huge for Man United, both being Man United fans, right? Um, somebody like Lee Grant, who obviously was third choice goalkeeper, Tom Heaton, who's currently his second slash third choice goalkeeper. Yeah. Um, as much as anything, one outstanding goalkeeper is really, really good at what they do, but probably secondly, outstanding for your environment as well. I'm pretty sure that the goalkeeping coaches would say they're worth their weight in gold. Um, they support the number one goalkeeper to try and get the agreed upon outcomes for a club, but secondly, able to try and push them and try and demand a standard from training every day. That's really important. That's got Carson at Sitter. Yeah, <laughs> he's like been a around. legend. Yeah, yeah. he's like the glue of the dressing room. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's not through luck that he keeps getting another year contract. It's yeah. definitely down to the fact that he's an outstanding goalkeeper, and probably down to the fact that he's an outstanding person around the training ground as well. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Do you know when good. like these? Hold on, hold on. Like, the last <laughs> one, this topic. Um, you know, in terms of like developmental, look, obviously you're working with the 18s and 21s, um, and obviously they get loaned out to to go and get first team experience. Um, as in terms of like your role and maybe your role in previous clubs, um, do you still touch base or like really close with the goalkeepers that are out on loan? And 
how do you sort of help them through that sort of process? As obviously it's a huge different dynamic when you go into a first team dressing room down the leagues. Yeah, I, th- I think it's down to the due diligence of the club because you're sending them into a, a, a lone pathway to get exposure, to get experience, to support them along the de- development journey. Yeah. So you need to make sure that the club going that they're going into is the right one for them. Um, the second bit to this is obviously, yeah, absolutely. Like we have dialogue with them all the way throughout the journey, understanding the challenges, understanding where you can support from, and obviously going and watching play games as well. The other person who's obviously critical in this relationship is the goalkeeping coach who they're currently working with at the other club. Um, trying to get an insight in terms of what they might be being asked to do because we might play a certain way, but they might be asked to go and play in a slightly different way for a first team, right? Um, and it's trying to make sure that the, the messages we both give them is really consistent. Um, so have, having that open dialogue from the start of the relationship is absolutely critical. Um so yeah, yeah, absolutely regular dialogue with the goalkeeper around all aspects of his performance and, and him as a person, but certainly with their club staff as well is, is vital. Yeah, I was just gonna add sort of it's sort of linked to your point, or I was just gonna ask, do you feel like as a goalkeeping coach, you're sort of closer but naturally because the group is smaller, you see these guys, you 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 have more contact with them. Do you feel like that's sort of different compared to like the outfield players and the coaches like in terms of that link and that bond that you create, do you feel like it's stronger in a way, or and also do you find it hard to create that distance or that those boundaries or uh, a challenge? No, that's 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 a really good question. So I think obviously you'd have heard of like the goalkeepers union and the goalkeepers union stick together and 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 that that old added sort of one. And it is true to an extent. I've got to say from from my years doing it, it is true. Um, yeah, I would I would say we've got close bonds, close relationships. You are in a really tight knit um, group every single day. Um, it has its pros and it has its cons for sure. Uh, and one of the cons you're talking about is making sure you don't get over familiar so that you can't set a boundary or standard. Or sometimes when things aren't going how you perceive them to, to be going, that you can't step in there and, and try and intervene. Um, it was certainly something as a younger coach, I think I probably struggled with a little bit more than what I do now. Um I think the relative age that I was when I was starting out, 21, I mean, some of these boys are two, three years younger than me. So it's really close in age. Um, now, obviously, unfortunately, there's a bit more distance between us in terms of age. Um, and I think with that becomes a slightly different relationship, um, a slightly different dynamic in that relationship anyway. That's really okay. interesting. Um, in terms of like the qualities that you look for in a goalkeeper, um, what, what what would you say are some of the main ones like for, for any sort of academy goalkeepers you know listen to this up and come in um, that they would look to start, sort of go and develop not necessarily technically or tactically like more psychologically the mental side of, of goalkeeping what, what would you say you look for I, th- I think certainly at the younger age groups that there's a couple of things here that really stick out for us um, one is is a willingness to play on the edge um, so what we have at the academy is is not like a profile as such, but behaviours that we expect to see from an academy goalkeeper. Um, and we would call them proactive behaviours. The problem sometimes with young goalkeepers trying to be proactive is that there's probably more room for mistakes to happen. We as adults right know that actually being proactive is probably going to help in their long-term development. But for a young kid who's playing against Manchester United on a Saturday or a Sunday, if they make a mistake, that's the end of their, their weekend. So it's trying to make sure that we can create a safe environment for them where they can be on the edge. Um, so we we try and we try and promote that for sure. So goalkeepers who want to go and play on the edge, take risks, um, both in and out of possession. 
The, the second thing, and I think the academy system has got really good at doing this um, through their games program, is understanding what the pressure points are for each of the individuals and then how they deal with those pressure points. Um, we're trying to prepare these boys to go and play in front of 80,000 people if they can, um, where it can be quite a lonely position sometimes as a role of the goalkeeper. All eyes are on you. If you make a mistake, it's going to get highlighted. Um, now, that's not going to happen at under 10s, under 11s, under 12s, 13s, 14s, all the way through. But it's actually how we can start to understand what those pressure points might be. And instead of moving away from them and trying to avoid them, actually, let, let's go into them. As long as we can try and support you in their moments, that's really important. Um, but if we can try and expose them to that a little bit more and actually become comfortable with them pressure points, I think you get a better goalkeeper. Um, but again, that, that's about us understanding them as individuals, right? And understand about how we can support and using the multidisciplinary team that we've got in the in the club. Um, okay. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's like a huge thing in psychology in terms of uh, it's a type of therapy called acceptance commitment therapy. Um, John's really uh, big into using that. Uh, so so yeah, no, sort of moving towards those uh, unpleasant feelings rather than trying to, you know, get away from them. So so yeah, you talked about sort of prepping them for playing in front of eighty thousand people. A huge part of, of my work, what I like to do, especially with academy footballers, is use role models. Um, in my work when we talk about you know yes sports psychology work in general and I wondered um, do you ever like use the first team goalkeepers at the time uh, and go and watch their training with the with the lads or do you do any work with the first team it's obviously you've got two great goalkeepers at the moment uh, Kaylor Navas and Dean Henderson so do you ever use them Uh, like yeah, I think I think certainly our under 18s, under 21s are really lucky. Um, our first team goalkeeping coach at the club is really um, good with our younger goalkeepers, has a real development mindset on. So, yeah, as, as often as he can, he'll get them boys up to train with him. And then obviously they can see one firsthand how these guys prepare and train on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, but secondly, asking questions as well about what they do. Because as you said, you've got two goalkeepers there who are culturally from very different backgrounds, have very unique characteristics and do things in a very different way. Um, the, the, the second bit to add here is obviously, I think if you talk about goalkeepers and there's a, there's a bit of a common, uh, a bit of a common sort of trend that people see goalkeepers being mad, slightly eccentric, um, have to be shouting all the time to have a presence and actually... I don't think that's the case. I think goalkeepers can have presence in slightly different ways. So if you look at your number one at the moment, David De Gea, um, you go and watch him play in a live game situation. It almost looks to the point where he's disinterested in the game. Um, definitely not communicating, probably not on the front foot. Um, doesn't looks like sometimes he's just playing with his boots almost when the game's going on. To a point where you'd be like, Oof, well, that that's not what we probably deem presence. But actually has it actually has it in a slightly different way. He's calm, really consistent with his actions um, and has been doing it for years. Yeah. Then you might see somebody like a Casper Schmeichel, for example, when he's at Leicester, who is a little bit more of that uh, of a communicator, wants to be involved in the game. Then you see Jordan Pickford, for example, at him at the World Cup when he's shouting down the tunnel, when he's getting, after he makes a save, he gets into the players and stuff like that. Now, all three of them have got presence, but they've all got it in slightly different ways. Our job is actually trying to tap into what the boys bring in terms of their personality and go, well, actually, look, like that role model might not suit you there, but actually he might be a better role model for you and being comfortable with that. Yeah, 100%. That's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, in terms of like the role models, when I do it in, in sports psychology, it really has to sort of flip that, fit their playing style. Um, and then we try and use like film and things like that to sort of pick out 
especially when they get caught sort of comparing themselves to others um sometimes it is hard not to compare to others so what can we actually pull out and make this negative thing of comparing yourself to others actually a positive and, and pull out what you're envious of and apply that to your game so yeah that's something that i do um but obviously we've been talking a lot about the psychological qualities and uh you know what it takes to be a goalkeeper at the pro level and academy level at a premier league club i wanted to sort of <clears throat> delve into sort of your role at, obviously forest and in your other clubs that you've been at you know what sort of like a average day for you um in terms of like yeah a, a normal training day would you say um yeah so so we probably get into the office around 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning um we normally prep for training obviously once we get in between the, the coaches and the multi-disc team um normally meet with the players if there's any form of analysis either pre or post game or training that we need to do so sometimes it might be um post game actually having a look sometimes it might be pre-training we're actually trying to look at best practice going into a session just to try and frame up some of the expectations from a session for example um, obviously then go go and deliver the session based on the conversations that we've had as a multidisciplinary team um, come back in it might be review the footage that we've had from the day um, the afternoon the boys would then go into some of their other things like their strength and conditioning their gym work or any type of uh, rehab that they might need to do and then actually it normally involves watching watching an evening session of the younger boys so often the days can be from 7.30 in the morning till 8.30, 9 o'clock at night um, and that's a regular occurrence Um but absolutely, it's a passion, so it doesn't seem like you're going into job. Oh, yeah, 100%. The, the role of a coach is uh, it, it is very unique. And I think it's good for us to sort of touch on, um, especially on a podcast like this, for any like young coaches that are sort of listening and sort of know what they're getting themselves into. We try and do that for a sports psychologist. Like, to become a sports psychologist is a long old journey. Like, you've got to get your undergraduate, your master's, and then you've got to go on and do two to four years of training and a lot of it isn't funded so yeah it's difficult um i think i think just just in that i think one of the bits that can get neglected quite easily from us is as practitioners who work a long season um who have to work across different age groups um i've used the analogy before it's almost like you're on a wheel so it's on like you're on the hamster wheel and you're going round and round and round and actually sometimes you've got to step off um, and the ability for, as, as you say, young practitioners, even for myself now, who I regard as slightly older, um, the ability to reflect and reflect effectively upon what you're doing in terms of your practice. I think that sometimes gets lost because of what you do during the day. But yeah. I think having the ability to step off the hamster wheel for a bit and just go, right, I need to see what, what's going well, what I could do better. And actually being really thoughtful about that is, is important as well. Mm, 100%. We're huge on self-care and, and sort of avoiding burnout. Um, I've burnt out many times um, and this year has been the the first year that I've really sort of took control of that and uh, took the actual steps and, and been a bit selfish in, in a way. Have you ever sort of burnt out as a coach um, and, and sort of how have you managed self-care in general? How do you disconnect? Yeah, I think I think sometimes I've struggled with a work-life balance. Um, football can be all-encompassing. And if I wanted to, I could be at the training ground from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock in the evening every single day. And there would be something on for you to try and tap into. Um, I think it's been, as you said about yourself this year, it's been one of the areas that I've really tried to sort of try and be in control of a little bit more. Um, you know, on a day off, turn the phone off, don't answer emails, just disconnect um, and, and do things outside of work that actually might be really important to you. Speak to family, go walking, listen to other podcasts. Um 
but yeah, some, sometimes difficult. I absolutely agree with you there. And I still haven't mastered that yet. I'm still trying really, really hard, but I'm still nowhere near that at all. So difficult, honestly. Definitely. I had a little question in terms of, so you mentioned the MDT team quite often. Um, and I was curious to know, like, how, how was that sort of implemented at the club, for example? Is it sort of like weekly meetings, bi-weekly meetings? Um, and who is in the room? Is it sort of everyone, the nutritionists, psychologists? Um, yeah, obviously not going into the details, but we'd love to look, sort of know like the dynamics and how, how it looks at, at not. Right, yeah, I think I think um, again one of the big things of academy football that's really been important in the last couple of years has been the influx of multidisciplinary teams um, and staffing around that. So if you think about, we would have like a, a weekly MDT meeting. We'd obviously have daily meetings around obviously the training sessions and the schedules, but we'd have weekly meetings just around the program and and some of the actions that we're trying to put in place. As you say, you're absolutely right. We would have the psychologists in there player welfare, S&C, sports scientists, coaches, nutritionists all in the room. Um, and that would be to talk about different boys, actions that we might have in place for them to try and support them. I think we'd be really naive as coaches if we felt that we had the golden bullet and we could answer all the questions. Um, even Not even as much as the skills that they bring, but actually just relationships with the boys. So being really comfortable that actually the, the person with the best relationship with a particular boy might be the nutritionist. And actually, we're going to actually tap into that. We're not going to move away from that. We're going to really build into that relationship and go, okay, well, if you've got a really good relationship with him, how can you support us to get him slightly better come game day? Um, and I think our certainly psychologists that we're working with at the moment and previous has been really big for working with the coaches and working with the staff, as opposed to being player-facing, actually being staff-facing, so they can give us a skill set to try and support them in terms of conversations we might have, um, which I think has been really impactful. Yeah. It seems like the the physios are always the yeah. the staff members that are the closest, aren't they? Because naturally they spend it's quite intimate, you know, like the the time they spend together, you know, um, on on that bed. So yeah, those conversations are always like super interesting to 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 listen to. Um, I've I've definitely experienced it through my experience, like walking through the yeah the 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 med like the how do you say it? the medical area. Yeah. Um, there's always banter, always laughs. So, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're exactly the same. I mean, yeah. I, I sort of cringe a little bit when the boys are going in there to, to go and to the physio. I'm like, no, please get out of there. Cause <laughs> out the training pitch. But, um, no, certainly the relationships them guys build with the boys is, is massively important. Yeah. Whilst we're on the topic of like sort of the whole team, the, the sort of whole staff at the club, um, I want to sort of touch on culture. Obviously, you've been at like quite a few clubs now, um, and experience some good cultures, some bad cultures, maybe. Um, and I wanted to sort of ask, what are some things that you think make a good culture? Like, are there any like values or behaviors that everyone sort of abides by? Um, and it really, you know, leads to a good, you know, high performing culture. I think the most important thing is consistency amongst your staff members in terms of the message they provide. Um, and I think, obviously, as I said, see, one, one of the biggest things around academy football is the influx of staff that have been around that programme. One of the hardest challenges is making sure that everybody's providing consistent messages to the players. So that's that's really important that, obviously, you get together regularly to make sure you've got a real clear identity in terms of what you're trying to deliver. I think that's one of the biggest things is when there's cracks within the staff that can provide you problems in terms of consistency with the players. Um, and then it becomes a little bit grey. Um Ideally, where you want the players to get to is probably being self-managed or self-managing of themselves. Um, and I think that's a really nice thing to say to go in and go, oh, we want 
player ownership. But actually, there's some steps to get there first. Um, and actually working with the boys in terms of the things that you think as a club are, to turn a phrase, non-negotiables, um, what the expectations are, and actually letting the players join in with that as well, um, in terms of what is going to help them to get to the outcomes they want to get to. What are the things that they, we, us as staff deem important on a day-to-day basis to help us get to the objectives? Um, and I think instead of just being a top-down approach, which just comes from your academy management, the best culture I've been involved in is involved the staff and ultimately involve the players as well. Um, so I think that three-way dynamic is absolutely crucial. Okay. Um, and yeah, in terms of that culture, um, we, we actually had a lucky enough to get a tour around Leicester with uh, obviously Stephen Kerber. And um, we were talking about, it's funny how each club has like their own way of showing the journey to the first team. Like theirs is sort of like two roads that go like that. Man U's is like a long sort of hallway. Um, how do Forest do it? Is is there is there a way that you know they sort of show that? Um, yeah. Well, we 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 um unfortunately probably haven't got the space that uh, yeah. and Man United do at the training ground. So there's only one way for us. There's no two ways. There's not that much space. In the <laughs> not that lucky yet. <laughs> but um, he, he was. Go on. I, I, Actually, I think it works really well for us. I think there's a real intimate environment there. Like the players team. are within touching distance of our lads. We're one building apart, if you like. There is a slight separation in terms of the building. But the players, I've got to say, the first team staff and players are great um, at integrating themselves with us. Um, the boys get loads of opportunities to go over and train with the first team. And we've got, again, we're really lucky as an academy where we've got a number of boys who are currently playing for our first team who have gone through that journey. Um and they're only too happy to come and support us in terms of us delivering a programme to the younger lads and providing, as you said earlier, that role model stasis for them. Um, so, so I would certainly say we're, we're in a really healthy environment in terms of that type of thing. Yeah. He, Stephen Kirby was talking about Brendan Rogers and sort of like how he does it pretty well um, in terms of the, the behaviours that he conducts to sort of create that connection and really for coach support as well. What's um, Steve Cooper like? Uh, is he pretty good on integration? And what, what sort of behaviours does he conduct? Um, yeah, outstanding. Outstanding. And, and you know, we have goalkeeping development centres where grassroots goalkeepers come along and receive regular training. Um, it was only last week that he stood there and watched part of that session. This was at six o'clock in the evening. Um, now, he, he didn't have any need to do that at all. He could have gone home to his family after a long day, after the stresses of managing a Premier League club, right? Um, but actually stayed and showed an interest and spoke to the boys. So that that's at a development centre level. So yeah, absolutely with 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 the academy stuff, supports. If they're in training, we'll wander down to the pitches, we'll come and watch the games, we'll come to the 21s fixtures, we'll come and have a look at the 18s fixtures, we'll ask for video of the boys. So absolutely, like they're absolutely integrated into one our environment for sure. But secondly, about trying to ensure that we get players over to the first team. It makes such a huge difference. Like I'm sure the players like appreciate that so much. So it's like little actions, little you know, little things like that that make the huge difference, isn't it? He's a manager. I really, really like. Yeah. I, I really would like him to potentially get the England job um, after Southgate. I feel like he is an English coach that I feel like could take us to to bring it home eventually. <laughs> Top I mean, guy. I mean, look, like for, for the young players who go over there, for your first team managers to say, you know, saw you play at the weekend thought you did this role, didn't think thought this could have been better. I mean, to have that level of involvement as a young player going over, it must make you feel a million dollars, right? Um, and I've, I've worked at both ends of the spectrum. We see 
first team staff who who don't really look at the development of the younger players coming through. But I mean, it makes such a difference for players and for staff, by the way, when your first team staff have an active interest in what you're doing. 100%. Yeah. Um, we've sort of gone away from it slightly, um, but I wanted to really just finally touch on um, the demands of a coach uh, for any coaches sort of listening. Obviously, we've talked about the demand of it being long days um, and, and struggling to have that work-life balance. Uh, are there any other sort of demands that you feel like you should share with the coaching community? Um, yeah. And how have you coped with them? Yeah, I think, obviously, I, I, I'll put this more towards, I suppose, younger coaches because this is something that I struggled with when I first started so as as a young coach coming through I felt there was a certain way that I needed to coach to please different parties and those different parties might be the players more senior staff around me who you would deem as having more experience than yourself and the parents as well um, so I didn't have a clear philosophy at that time and what I was happy to do was to put all that to the side anyway, to try and make sure that my impression management was really good with each of those parties. Um, and it's, it was about trying to be really, really comfortable in my own skin, being comfortable with what I delivered as a coach, how I interacted, the things that I did, the things that I didn't do, um, and, and get, get into ease with that. What I would say is, and, and I'm happy to admit this now, is I'm at a point where I'm 32 years of age um, and I wouldn't consider myself to be a skillful coach. Um, and I think that will be the same as until the day that I finish coaching. And it actually gets me up in the morning and wants me to get better. So the things where I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning to try and have a look at something else that might try and improve your practice, that's down to the fact that there's a real want to be better um, and that you think there could be something else out there. So being inquisitive is absolutely fundamental, I think, for any coach as well. So being able to manage different the different people in that environment and your relationships with them and how you're perceived is really, really important. And then secondly, having a real hunger and a real thirst to want to get better all the time um, is key. They, they would be two challenges, I think, would be really important to any coach. 100%. That being comfortable in your own skin and being comfortable in what you deliver, I think would have resonated with me as a young coach, when I was coaching on my placement year at uh, or Moors, I just wasn't comfortable with like what, what I was delivering. Like I was like, how can I be delivering this session if I'm if I've not played to the level that they have that they know more than me? But it's, that's not the case. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that would have really uh, resonated with me for sure. Um, a huge, great bit of advice that is. Um, <laughs> And as, as you say, look, I'm in the same position as you, where I haven't played the game to any type of level. Um, and certainly the boys that I coach have played to the game to a much higher level than what I'd ever be able to do or ever had. And I think actually being open and almost being vulnerable with that as well allows the boys to sh share in that journey. So instead of me trying to put on a front and being something that actually I, I can't back up, those pressurised situations in front of 80,000 people, I can't really, um, I can't really share experience with them in that. What I can do is try and hopefully give them some tools that might allow them to be better at doing that and type of things. Um, but I certainly can't say that I've ever done that um, or I know how that feels. I don't. And actually being open enough to say that to, to, to the people in front of you sometimes is, is just as important. Yeah, I think they'd appreciate that as well. I mean, one of the best coaches of all time, you know, Jose Mourinho, didn't play to, to a high level and uh, 
you know, he had a like really really famous quote where he was like, you know, I can't teach Ronaldo to be a to, to be a better player. It's more about how can I unlock him in my system. Um, so yeah, the role of a coach is uh, is more than just you know trying to make them a better player in terms of technical ability, but it's also tactically, socially, psychologically. Like there's so many more things other than just technical ability. So so yeah, um, I also a huge part of our work. We work Master in the Mind is partnered with a charity called Go Again. Um, which provides psychological support to a released academy footballers that can't really afford it. Um, and I wanted to sort of touch on the released process at uh, Forest and what that sort of looks like. Um, it's only sort of aftercare. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so our player welfare officer, they absolutely go out of their way to make sure that one, we try and provide a pathway, whether that be football or non-football related. Um, Obviously, the big part of this is understanding what the player wants um, and then trying to access some avenues that we can support them with. Uh, it's certainly not close the door and, and be finished in terms of our formal communication. It's very much informally and formally. We want to check in in terms of how they're doing offers that offer that aftercare support if they do need it. Um, as I said, our, our staff at Forest have been brilliant in terms of that historically, in terms of just understanding that after the player leaves, um, that actually that might not be our job done. It might be just checking in and just sort of going, is everything okay? Are you comfortable? Um, and trying to support them with that next stage of the journey as well. So uh, absolutely, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, a huge part of our work is to sort of um, develop that wider identity in terms of like what you've just said in terms of a career outside or inside of football. Um, ideally, you know, I'd love to take a proactive approach where we can develop that wider identity before they're released so they don't actually experience that psychological distress they have a plan regardless or other interests outside of football or inside of football. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's obviously good that Forest have got that. Uh, I think Premier League clubs are really, you know, uh, lucky in that sense, in terms of financial. And that wider identity can help, like, during their career as well. So it's like the results, they don't have to take it specifically back home or to, you know, it's their, it's their fault, you know. It's just, it's creating that distance a bit more. So it, it can be helpful during their career and towards the latter stages as well so yeah I, I certainly think in recent years we brought in like a life skills program which runs around the 18s and the 21s program and runs all the way down through the academy but hopefully gives them like a really diverse set of speakers who can talk about that and sort of say look look your identity isn't just a footballer um, and there's different avenues to explore so I think it's something that both the club and the Premier League um, and the EFL are really going big guns for to make sure that we can do more to support these young lads fantastic um and then yeah sort of like the final sort of section um i wanted to sort of touch on sports psychology in, in general um do you work with the with the sports psychologist as a coach or what what sort of been your encounters with the sports psychologist yeah I, I would say i've been really lucky um throughout my time working in football um that I've, I've encountered certainly what i feel to be some really high level psychologists um and as I said, as, as much as anything about going in there to ask about how you can maybe support players, it's about actually about how you can support yourself as a coach as well. Um, and as I said, there's been probably a bit of a move away, certainly in recent years when I've worked with psychologists from being player-facing to actually coach-facing and trying to give you the skill set in terms of trying to develop these these young lads and trying to support them on their journey, um, which I think has been absolutely critical. Um, I, think, I think being able to upskill yourself in that way uh, and psychologists sometimes being really, really uh, honest in terms of their feedback about your coaching and your communication is 
is absolutely fundamental. I think everything we talked about here in terms of obviously what good coaching is and how how my coaching's developed has involved some form of communication or psychology, which underpins everything, right? Um, so it's it's absolutely critical. Thank you for some. No, yeah, definitely agree. Um, and then in terms of like players working with sports psychologists, um, how would how much would you sort of recommend that? Uh, obviously, say highly for the podcast, but <laughs> not biased here. We're not yeah, being biased yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, in general, like what sort of from what you've seen, um, like how has sports psychologists been received in academies, um, and how beneficial has it been? Um, yeah, you can be unbiased. <laughs> no, listen, I, I think I think when I first started, um, the role of psychologist in academy football was send the player there when they're going through some form of negative feelings or emotions. When I first started, I think um, the players were signposted to psychologists when things were going wrong or there was a problem. Um, it was like, right, can you pick up the pieces for us because there's been a dip in performance or there's been some form of anxiety um, or we need you to get them to deal with the pressure of training slightly better. Actually, I think how it's changed is that it's a skill set and you actually probably go and see a psychologist as a way of improving that skill set. So instead of it being reactive, it's actually really proactive. Um, and I think coaches being really comfortable to to, to try and share in that journey um, has, has been key. That would be the biggest change that I think we've seen. Yeah, that's really reassuring to hear that because uh, that's something we're really trying to sort of disseminate on, on this podcast and across like all the content that we do on social media is you know it's a way to actually improve rather than just you know solve problems um so yeah it's uh it's classic you pick that up as well um and then sort of like a final sort of uh question um obviously you've had a bunch of experience working in professional football worked at various clubs what are some future ambitions um, and aspirations for you as a coach? Like, what would you say is the the, the dream? Um, I'm going to sound really boring here, um, but I'm going to be really honest. Um, there's 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 two things really. Um, one, I would like to um, support a young goalkeeper who goes on to play at the very top of their journey. Now, that's not to say that me as a coach. I have a very small part to play in that journey, if anything. Um, I'm certain that one of these coaches say, well, he's my player, so that that absolutely doesn't fit my narrative at all, I'm afraid. Um, if I can support a player for a small portion of his journey who goes on to play at the top level, I think that'd be really interesting to see what that journey looks like and all the bumps in the road that happen in that time there for my own learning. Um, I have no ambition to go and work at first team level. Um, I absolutely love trying to develop young goalkeepers. Um, my passion is development, absolutely. Um, so it's about working with, within the current sphere that I currently find myself. I'm really comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. the, the second bit is at the end when obviously I can't kick a ball anymore and I'm walking around the pitch or limping around the pitch um, and my best days are behind me. It's about getting in a room with people who you trust and who you respect Um within the field and for them to turn around and go, actually, he was really good at what he did. If if I can get that, I think I've done okay. okay. But there are two things that I that I aspire for. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's a long way away. And, <laughs> uh, and in regards to the first one, you know, I sort of love that, that point in terms of your passion lies within the developmental sort of area in terms of developing young goalkeepers and you have no aspirations to go to first team level. Because I think... Every sort of young coach always just wants to go bang, 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 bang. The quicker I can get to first team, the better. 
um and from what i'm experiencing interviewing like uh loads of different coaches is that it's okay to specialize in you know one area if anything it's better because you're actually honing in on the skills to an actual you know area and we i unlocked that through uh paul burry who works at palace um he works within the developmental uh the real young kids um and foundation phase and that's when i realized that's probably where my passion lies i went in and coached under 23s and under 18s and it really put me off coaching i didn't really enjoy it um i won't go into why but <laughs> i realized i love developing the love for the game that foundation phase you know if i can get a kid to fall in love with football like i did when i was going to those like you know developmental academies back then um if i can give them the same journey then you know i've, I've done my job so yeah i think that's a really good message to you know spread to, to young coaches out there for sure yeah. so yeah um but thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sort of uh sharing your story um it seems like forest have got a really good sort of setup there um and i hope you go on to achieve your goals and aspirations i'm sure you will you have a great appreciation for the psychology of and, and the mental side of football which is uh really good to hear it seems like all the sports psychologists are doing a, a good job out there so so that's good to hear and uh and yeah no thanks so much for coming on i've really enjoyed it well guys thank you very much for your time and obviously um if you've got any questions obviously leading on from this just please uh please get in contact for sure Fantastic. yeah your links uh will, will be in the description of the youtube video and i'm sure you'll be spammed with uh videos and clips of the podcast on uh <laughs> social media so so yeah no i appreciate it thanks guys all right so yeah uh we hope you enjoyed this episode if you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it most importantly like subscribe comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future also go follow us on twitter or instagram links will be in the description of the youtube video or find us at mastering the mind podcast thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one